Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And we've had a busy week, what with the autumn statement, the net migration figures, and we're going to talk about all of that. And I think we're also going to cover, in the second half, the, the far right, in particular in the context of the elections in Argentina and the Netherlands and these shocking riots in Dublin. But I think we should kick off with something that's sort of just happened in recent hours, and that is, I think, unless there's any deeper explanation, only be described as a temper tantrum or, by or, Little or, Rishi. Or misplayed politics. So to give people background, the Greek prime minister came to the UK and he saw Keir Starmer and he was planning to see Rishi Sunak. And in some of the reporting that came out of his meeting with Keir Starmer, there was press stories saying Keir Starmer was open to the idea of at least lending the Elgin marbles back to Greece, which then led, astonishingly, to Downing Street, it seems, cancelling a meeting with the Greek Prime Minister. But what they say, the reason for the cancellation was Mitsotakis doing an interview where he said that having the marbles partly in London and partly in, in Athens is like having Mona Lisa cut in two and in two places. And this is, this is what's being briefed. I don't know. But the whole thing just strikes me as ludicrously petulant. And you don't think it's a, a, a very strange attempt to try to grab headlines, that they were jealous that Starmer had got press out of meeting with the head of, head of government well, and people... In which case, it's even worse. Yeah. Can I just sort of on that, that one quickly? Presumably, if you're a leader of the opposition, it's a big win if you can meet a serving head of state. Well, yes and no. I mean, so Chris Mason at the BBC, he, he, he said this thing that it would irritate the prime minister, that a visiting prime minister would meet the leader of the opposition. That's complete nonsense. I mean, you sort of assume that if a visiting head of government is here, and unless it's just a quick in and out, if they've got time, most of them will meet the head of the opposition. Probably, yeah. usually. Yeah. So I just don't think it's that big a Am deal. Am I right, though, that it was a big coup when you went to the US in opposition and you got to meet the president, that that was a big deal? Yeah, but it was a big deal because it was the president of America. Right. But, you know, when Neil Kennett was leader of the opposition, he met Ronald Reagan as leader of the opposition. Now, as it happened, Ronald Reagan... 
and Margaret Thatcher sort of conspired to make sure it was a disaster, uh, not least with the help of our frank, fearless and not very free press. What just reminds that? This was a time when Labour was still committed to unilateral nuclear disarmament. So it was a big deal. Neil going to see the White House, sit down with Reagan. And I think it, just from memory, they didn't allow cameras in. Once that Neil had briefed about the meeting going well, they then briefed out that it had gone badly and that it wasn't very long and very, very, it was awful. It was awful. Um, so I wrote a piece for the New Statesman, which did dear me to my colleagues in the lobby because the, I remember the headline was, you guys are the pits. And it was about basically how Reagan, Thatcher and most of our press had conspired to make this a disaster. And it must have been incredibly disappointing because you say it would have been a really big deal, a big chance just before, presumably just before the 92 election, to establish Kinnock as a significant yeah. figure. So when we were in opposition, because Clinton was in, in office, and, and that went really, really well, partly because they wanted it to. But the idea that the Greek prime minister, and bear in mind, this is a guy who the previous Home Secretary, Ms. Braverman, is on record as saying that, you know, we have to work very closely with the Greeks in terms of managing some of these asylum and immigration issues. But I think the message this sends to the rest of Europe and the rest of the world is just bizarre. So unless there's a deeper explanation, I think it's a massive own goal. And where do you stand, Rory? As I'm, I'm, guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing you're going to be, there are ours, we keep them. Where do you stand? <laughs> Finders, on? keepers, losers, weepers, the Elgin marvels are ours. No. Is well, that what they taught you? That's what they At taught school. us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. First thing, j just quick background on this. So these are obviously these amazing sculptures that were on the face of the Parthenon, the great temple in Athens. And when Greece was a province of the Ottoman Empire, ruled from Istanbul by the Turks since the uh, Middle Ages, Lord Elgin, British aristocrat with a, a lot of money, a lot of interest in antiquities, came do, in. Do, do you know what his title was? What was his title? Ambassador Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary of His Britannic Majesty to the Sublime Port of Selim III, Sultan of Turkey. Very good. So he was the big ambassador of the Ottoman Empire. And then came over and decided, and this was part of the whole tradition that had started in the Renaissance of getting hold of antiquities and bring them home. But he pulled off the most extraordinary thing, which is that he convinced the Turkish government to allow him to buy the Elgin marbles from them, get some sort of paperwork and export license and took them back to Britain. About which there continues to be huge dispute. And even at the time, there was huge dispute. So, you know, the, the kind of people that would impress you, sort of Byron and Shelley and all the great I'm romantic... About, I'm about to quote his poem. Oh, very good. They were very, very cross with it. Go on, give us a quote <laughs> of the... So Byron wrote, Dull is the eye that will not weep to see the wall, thy walls defaced, thy mouldering shrines removed by British hands which it had best behoved to guard those relics ne'er to be restored. Cursed be the hour when from their isle they roved, and once again thy hapless bosom gored, and snatched thy shrinking gods to northern climes abhorred. Yep, there we are. So that, that's, that's absolutely right. Good polarising issue back in the day. Polarising issue back in the day. So I guess the obvious question for the British Museum, which is uh, filled with antiquities from all over the world, you know, huge chunks of Egypt, chunks of Greece, bits of China, etc. And this is not just the British Museum, it's the Metropolitan Museum in New York, the Louvre, etc. I mean, after all, the Louvre has one Mona Lisa, you know, which the Italians could well say they'd like back and you know, this and the other, is of course the question when you begin returning things. And maybe it's inevitable, you know, the Benin bronzes are on their way back. 
there's big moves from the VNA, I think, to return some of the Mandalay treasures. And in fact, I think they've already begun that. And there's been returns also to Ethiopia, or at least strong discussions about returns and, to Ethiopia. And George Osborne, who's the current head honcho of the British Museum, seems broadly sympathetic to doing something. Yeah, his, his compromise is a sort of loan program where technically they're only on loan to the Greeks. And the Greeks send us some antiquities on loan to the British Museum. But if you go to Athens, the most beautiful museum has been produced right next to the Parthenon with gaps for the marbles. And it's actually, in my personal view, a much more stunning space than we have in the British Museum. Would be a but which would presumably get fewer visitors? Yeah, argument might be fewer visitors. The old argument that the uh, the British Museum used to make quite pompously is that they were good at protecting these antiquities. And of course, they get very excited about the fact that there was an explosion in the Parthenon where an Ottoman uh, munitions depot exploded and might have destroyed the marbles if they hadn't been removed before it exploded. But the Greeks now say that they've become damaged over here because of all sorts of... Exactly, damaged over here. And furthermore, partly I think we painted them with things that we thought would protect them and it seems to have partly corroded the imagery. So actually the plaster casts taken off the marbles in the 19th century are actually crisper and cleaner than the actual marbles themselves. Now, before we go into the autumn statement, do you, do you want to know the polling on the Go on, give us the polling. <laughs> so at Ipsos Mori poll in 1998, so that's some time ago, just after we were in power, found 39% in favour of returning them to Greece, 15% in favour of keeping them, and 40% had no opinion or would not vote if the question were put to a referendum. I don't believe that was ever a proposal, <laughs> by the way. In 2002, 59% of British respondents thought the Parthenon marbles belonged in Greece, 18% that they belonged in Britain, and 18 did not know. So if Sunak is bizarrely trying to play this for politics, it's not at all clear to me who he's pitching that this it, at. That it's a huge culture war. And yeah. it feels yeah. a bit like a bit of a yeah. Yeah. terrible own goal. No, no, it doesn't sound very exciting. I guess there might be some bits of the sort of British nationalist right that might be a bit more finders, keepers, losers, weepers about this. I suspect so. Yeah. The, the people who think that we won the war on our own and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Okay. Autumn statement. Autumn statement. So we talked about the autumn statement in advance. You were tipped off, weren't you? I, I Expensing. Expensing, yeah. I, I'm <laughs> pushing for expensing, yeah. Well, let's, let's give a big context. We, we talked about this last week in the lead up to it. Because of inflation and because income tax thresholds were frozen, more and more people have ended up paying income tax, which meant that the government ended up with more than £20 billion extra. And the question was, what was it going to do with it? And broadly speaking, there are three things that it could have done with it. I would have liked them to save the money in a prudent fashion because you never know what's going to happen in the future. Or pay down debt. Pay down debt. Yeah. Another way of doing it. Exactly. Because debt interest is high. Second thing you could have done is you could have invested it in public services because, of course, as inflation kicks in, in real terms, the money for public services decreases. So the pressure on the NHS, pressure on schools is growing. The third thing you can do is you can give the money away in tax cuts. And the government decided to do that last thing. And I think that was primarily, at sort of macro level, a political move because what it is doing is taking away money that otherwise could be handed to an incoming Labour government. And it's presenting Labour with a challenge to say, we've decided we prefer tax cuts to investments in public services. Are you going to go along with that? Or are you going to say, actually, we'll do something else? Now, that's the politics of it. And then once you've taken the politics into account, which is a big thing, what did they actually do with their tax cuts? Well, there I am very sympathetic. 
When it actually came to the decisions they made, I think they made some good ones. They decided to do things which you pointed out were probably less headline catching. So allowing companies to put off against tax capital investment, which is a good thing for growth because it encourages companies to invest more in plant machinery, which we're light on Britain. They've also uh, made a cut to national insurance, which is also a good way of addressing taxes. And It's better than a cut in the basic rate. Better than the cut in the basic rate of tax. Because it, it basically helps working people as opposed to rich pensioners. Exactly. And then they've also uprated benefits. So I think the details of it, if they were going to make the big decision to do that, are not bad. And Labour is broadly speaking endorsed it, haven't they? They haven't actually distanced themselves from it. But that, again, may be political. Well, I think it is political. And it's, and it's also rather strange because you're now going into a general election where Brexit which has caused a lot of these economic problems. The OBR report confirming we'd be 4% richer if uh, we hadn't left the European Union. That's not going to be part of the election debate, both sides would seem to be saying. And now it would seem that the, the massive spending cuts, which are locked in, there's a, there's a splendid graphic, which we should put in the newsletter, which I think the Institute of Fiscal Studies did, where it shows the money that is being used to pay for these tax cuts yeah. in the coming years is almost directly correlates with the spending cuts there are going to have to be. Yeah. So he's basically locked in spending cuts. Yeah. But, but, but sorry, but locked in in the Tory plans. So the challenge correct. to Labour is are they going to go along with these so, plans? Correct. So, so, but, so it's sort of austerity. He's so if they're not, and by the way, it's austerity that is almost on a par with Osborne's austerity. You've got your protected budgets. Yeah. So, for example, you've now got local authorities, Tory and Labour, really essentially saying they are pretty much cut to the bone already and they're looking at huge cuts after the next election. You've got prisons, mm -hmm. which you and I both yeah. talk about a lot, yeah. double-digit yep. cuts. You've got cuts into virtually every service apart from probably health and probably education. And I saw an astonishing stat. So in 2000, year 2000, the share of overall public spending that went on health and social care was 26%. 2010... 32, today 40, 2028 on these plans, 45%. So in protecting health, and by the way, we've now got this consultant's pay deal, which is not included in these figures. That's another 250 million that's yeah. got to come well, from I mean, somewhere. I think we've, we've talked about this. The NHS Workforce Transformation Plan on its own will add something like an additional 2% to uh, government spending of GDP. Mm over a period. So it's huge changes in the government budget. Now, Tim Shipman, who is a Sunday Times journalist, has written an article which my friend and mentor David Gork drew my attention to, saying that he thinks it's almost inevitable that there will be more tax cuts in the spring budget. David thinks this is very unlikely. And he points out that this is because actually, if you look at the forecasts, the finances are under more pressure than people understand, because traditionally, every year, the government is supposed to put up fuel duty by five pence plus inflation. And there's a temporary cut of five pence mm -hmm. on fuel duty. Every year, certainly since I've been in government, they haven't done it, which means the government has to find at least five billion pounds in order to keep this cap on fuel duty. The he's also set a precedent with alcohol in this one by freezing that. I mean, do, do, are you saying that you think he sort of tried to do project a bit of crowd pleasing, as it's called, before the budget. I still think you'll find room for tax cuts because look, the general judgment of the serious economists, if you look at people like the IFS and Resolution Foundation, and some of the others that you sort of go to to kind of dig into the detail on this. I mean, even Paul Johnson, who's pretty sober in his analysis, he said, you know, a lot of these figures are basically just made up. And somebody else talked about fairy tales and fiscal illusions. So, so then the, the challenge is, so uh, I mean, 
listen, I, I think there's there's something in that. I don't think there's going to be tax cuts. I don't think he can afford to do tax cuts in spring budget. And the question is, is there smart politics in making the cuts now? Because some of these things kick in in January, so people will feel benefits. The, 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 the national insurance exactly. cut, yeah. But the real question is, what on earth is Labour going to do? Do in opposition or do in government? Doing government because they're signing up to the Tory cuts, presumably because of the memory of '92. Remind people of the tax bombshell in '92 and why that went wrong. That was when Labour essentially committed to higher child benefit and pensions. And and what happened there is that the Tories had come up again with a pretty tough budget, and Neil Kinnock quite understandably said, "No, no, no. Given the promises we've made, given what we believe in, we believe there should basically be higher taxes and higher public spending." And that was completely consistent with Labour's position. But that then allowed the Tories to go into the 92 election and talk about Labour's tax bombshell. So is that the fear this it, time around as it well? It might be, but it's quite hard to do that when, even on this autumn statement, the tax burden is higher than it's been at any time since the late 1940s. It's only because we've got these lying newspapers that all said this was a huge tax cutting budget, autumn statement. It wasn't. The tax burden is still going yeah, well, up. The, um, but we've talked about that. The tax burden in Britain is still considerably lower. So it's than, quite high. It's a lot harder, I think, for the Tories to project themselves as a low tax burden. I guess there are two different questions. On there's, there's the tax burden overall, which is lower in Britain than it is in other European countries, but higher than it's been since Attlee. Mm. But the question for Labour is presumably, ideally, to find the money for public services, they would like to tax people more. So do you think it, it would be impossible for a brave Labour Party to say, actually, we disagree with what they've done, we disagree with these cuts, we would be investing more in public services, this is the wrong way to go, or would that be catastrophic for their election? I mean, it's a tough call. I'm not convinced it would be that catastrophic because I, I think that I think millions of people kind of think this is just end of the road time. It was very interesting to me how Hunt in the statement projected himself with an awful lot of confidence and brio, but it didn't last very long. And by the time they were doing this touring the studios later in the day, they were very much on the back foot. Now, Labour, I think, have to get themselves in a position where the public feel an understanding of how tough economic conditions are and have the belief that Labour will make better choices. Now, would it be sensible to go into an election saying we're going to tax more, we're going to borrow more so that we can spend more? I think that is quite a difficult thing to do politically. But I do think there's something unreal about the fact that we're going into an election where neither Brexit nor projected massive cuts in public spending are really going to be on the agenda because neither party wants to well, talk about it. It's very odd, isn't it? Because Labour presumably will have to find 30, 40, 50 billion pounds a year more if it's to make a real impact on things it wants to do on public services, on growth. And there's a huge amount of expectations around that. But at the same time, Rachel Reeves, who seems to be impressive, steady, competent, is absolutely refusing to do that. So there's a real risk that Labour's going to take over and be signed up to really tough conservative spending cuts mm. and, then, and, and, then, and all the chips are on growth and where's the productivity going to come from because that's the other thing that you, you didn't i couldn't find in this autumn statement is where where's all this productivity going to come from to offset the the problems we've got in the health service school service and in, in uh, and the economy more generally the other point i think labor should be making far more aggressively is that essentially this is a government that now exists to try to lay traps for an opposition as opposed to a government that's trying to govern, which says to me that it's sort of run out of reasons to govern. On that second, I mean, I think that's a bit niche for public communication. I mean, I think exists to lay traps. I'm not sure that really plays with the average voter well, because the what average does. voter would be like, what, what do you mean by that? Well, and I'll then tell you what I mean. I'll tell you what, I mean. Yeah. Tell you what yeah. I mean is that this government is, seems to me as, it's going to be the first parliament ever 
where disposable income is lower at the end than the beginning. Right. And this is their big idea, this expensing thing and cutting national insurance paid for by public spending cuts to come. But then the question is, what would Labour do? No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me, let me yeah, finish yeah, the point about yeah, why, why yeah, I think this is irrelevant. Yeah. So when a government reaches that point, I think there are people out there thinking, for God's sake, can we just have a general election? And the reason they're hanging on, rather than going for a general election, which they're probably looking at the polls think they're going to lose, is actually a kind of crash and burn to try to lay traps for Labour. And if Labour do get into power, screw them over so that they're probably only for one term. And I think that is part now of some of the Conservatives' thinking. So the, the problem, I think, though, is a public line, is when you explain what laying traps means, is it can sound a bit like you're challenging Labour to tell you what their position is, and they're refusing to do it. They're just going along with what the Tories are saying. And there's yeah. something in that. But I think this, this notion that the government has given up on governing, I think strikes well, a chord with people. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure they've given up on governing. I mean, I think, I think that was, given the hand he's been dealt, I think a lot of the things they did were smart thoughtful, but the overall picture, as you say, is catastrophic. I think the big problem for the Tories is not Jeremy Hunt's budget. The big problem for the Tories is Liz Truss and Quasi Courting. I think that they are not going to be able to recover from that blow to their economic credibility. They can do all they want to seem with Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, steady as you go and technocratic, but They've lost the ability to be a safe pair of hands because of what trusts and quoting. Yeah, even with it, you know, so if you look at the OBR, growth forecasts are actually down. Borrowing figures were slightly better. Taxes up, increased inflation, fiscal drag drawing more and more people into higher tax bans, and debt at best stable. Well, so, the, the economy is in a terrible situation. I mean, there's no, no doubt and, at all. And, but, and, but, I think but, it's but, very but, hard for them to pin it sure, all on Labour sure. somehow. No, 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 I don't think... Or make, but, it, make it all a question for Labour. I don't think they can pin it all on Labour, but I do think as we get closer to the election, people are going to say, and how's it going to be any different under the next lot? For sure, and, for sure. And, and Labour hasn't explained where they're going to get growth from either. They've no idea where they're going to get growth from. Well, they've come up with this similar stuff, you know, talk about planning and all this sort of stuff. And by the way, Roy, on planning and on nimbyism, yeah. which we agree is a big thing, yeah. I got sent something from one of your former constituents uh. who wants to know whether you stand by something you did in 2014. Okay. Rory welcomes, this is from your own website, Rory welcomes decision to block wind turbine. And you launched, Rory, I cannot believe you did this. You launched something called Cumbria Wind Watch to stop wind turbines. 100%. And I'll defend it to the hilt. Go on then. Because our income in Cumbria is from tourism. This is a national park area. Our landscape is very precious and it is catastrophic but where for the income the of Cumbria. We, you've got a lot of wind up there. We do have wind. We do have wind. We do have wind in Cumbria. No, I think it's a very, very poor short-term decision for Cumbria. Those things will be up there for 50 years. They would destroy the landscape of Wordsworth, of Turner. We're bringing in seven and a half million visitors a year. We have a tourism economy of two and a half billion pounds a year. But isn't this classic? Don't you think that every area of the country could say that something good about their area? Even Stockton, the famous, what did he call it? Yeah, exactly. James Cleverly on Stockton, yeah. Have you ever, call, have you ever called another human being a shithole? No, I don't think I've done do you, that. Do you, know, do you know if anybody who's ever I, called another I, human I mean, being a shithole? It sounds like a place reference, not a person reference. It certainly does. Um, now, on, on nimbyism and, and your good challenge to me, I think this is a good transition to Holland, where the question of building houses and affordable housing is central in the next election. Should we take a break? Hola. Hello. 
This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Ernest Campbell. Um, one, one thing I said that I'd really like, and I think we both like to do, is to encourage people to pick up on some of our leading episodes, which are these interviews that we have done with world leaders, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, some amazing recent interviews. If you want to understand Israel-Palestine and the two-state solution, got interviews coming on COP and climate. Probably, I think, some of the best ways of understanding the issues of our era and encountering some fascinating people is through the rest of politics leading. Would you agree? Fun- fundamentally disagree, Rory. I think it's absolutely... <laughs> no, I do. And, you know, I find it a bit weird that we get... We've had far more listeners for you and I blathering on about the Middle East, say. Now, I'm not saying we don't kind of know a bit about it, in my view. But actually, the feedback we've had for the last two on leading with Simon Sebag Montefiore, historian, and Tony Klug, who's, who has worked for both the Israelis and the Palestinians, has been phenomenal. Before that, Saeed Awasi and yeah. Palestinian ambassadors. So there's been a lot actually on yeah. if people done, are interested. Lot, if you really we'll do lots more. Yeah. We'll do lots more. So yeah, and then if you go back a bit, people like François Hollande. Yes. Tony Blair. Yes. Uh, Mary McAleese. Yes. So yeah, people should check it out. I think you'd um, you'd enjoy it. And, and there's something for everybody. There are public intellectuals. There are writers and thinkers. There are heads of state. There are former prime ministers, there's people like Hillary Clinton taking you into the center of the war room when she's making, mm. when the calls are being made on the attack on Osama bin Laden, et cetera, et cetera. So give it a go. Excellent. Now, should we talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Wilders in Holland, Mr. Millet in Argentina, and also these shocking riots in, in Dublin? Where do you want to start with all that? Well, let's 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 start with the Netherlands. And, and the victory, basically, of Heert de Wilders, whose extraordinary organization, which isn't quite a political party called the PVV, has just taken the largest amount of seats by a big margin. So just a little introduction. Still, still a relatively small proportion, though, 37 yes. out of 150. Yeah. So uh, just an introduction to the, the Dutch electoral system, because it's uh, fascinating. I mean, it is pure proportional. So 150 seats. If you can get 150th of the vote, mm. 0.8% of the vote. Um, you get a seat. And 
it has been run by coalition governments almost forever, and it's been a very, very rigid system. Heert de Wilders is famous for being the longest-serving mm. member of the Dutch Parliament, but he's only been in since 1998. And this is partly my friend Manix Amont, who teaches at, at, uh, at Yale, points out, because being a Dutch politician is unbelievably boring. I mean, to, to put it in contrast, the father of the House, when I was in the House of Commons as late as 2019, Ken Clark, had been in since the early 70s. So the fact that the longest-serving MP has only been in since 98 gives you a sense of it. And the reason it's so boring is that everything is run on a party list system. So much so that Marnix jokes that you might as well just have one person representing the party uh, in Parliament, because there's absolutely no disagreements within these parties. Does it, does it make you less keen on proportional representation? Well, I think definitely this form is bizarre, really bizarre. And they signed coalition agreements where they have, over the last few coalitions, specified every single law that they're going to pass. So there's actually literally no point in Parliament at all. If you're in the government, you vote with every law that was agreed three years earlier. And if you're in the opposition, you vote against. But it doesn't yeah, but make the reason any we have this election is because that system broke down under the last coalition. And, and it breaks down when a surprise happens. If something that wasn't in the agreement happens, suddenly it, it breaks down. So Holland, um, moving forward, has gone through, I guess, what's happening in a lot of European countries. We talked about it in, in France. It, broadly speaking, had three big parties, it had a Labour Party, a Liberal Party, which is the party whose prime minister has been in for the last four elections, and it had a Christian Democrat Party. And these three parties sort of dominated Dutch politics for a long time, and then it began to fall apart. And the left in particular in the Netherlands has really collapsed. If you put together all the left-wing votes in Parliament, they're only about a third mm. of the seats. And that's largely because the traditional manual working class has completely deserted the left, just as they basically deserted the Socialist Party in France. And I think it's a problem for the SDP in Germany as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Rotterdam, for example, which is a kind of big industrial port city, which was their bastion, doesn't vote for them anymore. Instead of which, those votes have begun to go towards far-right anti-immigrant parties, of which here at the Wilders movement is a big example. Over to you. I think it's right we, we pin him on the far right, but he started out as an advisor to Rutter, the outgoing prime minister. And it was when Rutter started to talk about supporting Turkish accession to the European Union that Wilders decided not for him and off he went. He's been around, as you say, for a very long time. I think he, he looked utterly stunned on the night of the election. And I think there's a warning in here for all parties that are way ahead in the polls, including Labour, actually, because it's interesting how many young people voted for him and also how many people voted for him who didn't vote before. And I suspect a lot of people who told pollsters they were going to vote for somebody else. But the other thing that happened is that the Rutter's successor, who's a, a woman from Turkish immigrant background, she became the first of those sort of mainstream party leaders to say, well, yeah, maybe we could do some sort of arrangement with Wilder's party, which in a sense, I think, pushed people who maybe were a bit reluctant to vote for Wilder's to think, oh, well, he can't be that bad then. And I think that was a huge mistake by her. Now, we got a very interesting message from my friend Jan Arge Fjortoft, who's a Norwegian, former Norwegian footballer, now commentator. And he said he'd like to hear his favourite podcast, he called it, talking about why we think 
what are the positive reasons that people vote for people like Wilders and, and Millet? And I've been trying really hard to think of it. I think mo I think a lot of it is a protest vote. But I think if you look look at Trump, make America great again, I think it's they've somehow managed to capture alongside this vote for us against them a sense almost of, of optimism, hmm. provided you stick within your own culture and which, your own barriers. Which, which was true, actually, of course, of, of Boris Johnson, because he, um, you know, for, for his many flaws that we keep talking about endlessly, projected this sort of boosterish optimism yeah. and a sense that things we don't get done. And, and the problem, of course, always with the centre is because it's been running things since the, I guess, the 90s, it always gave an impression of defending the status quo. And defending the status quo often involves saying, oh, it's all too difficult. Mm. You know, we can't really do this. We can't really get immigration under control. We're not allowed to do that. So politicians who say nonsense to that, we can change things, are really important. Um, Hedt de is, of course, not the first of these guys in Dutch politics. Pim Fortune. Pim Fortune. He was assassinated. Absolutely. That's, by the way, why Wilders, one of the reasons why Wilders has been for years really surrounded by strong protection. He's not allowed windows in his office because they're worried somebody will pop him off. That's right. He, he's exactly. He, he lives this very, very odd life. So Pim Fortune, very different figure from Hedt de Wilders. He was much, much more intellectual, much more flamboyant, very openly gay and celebrated his sexuality, as well as being radically anti-Muslim. And, and that gives you a sense of how different Dutch populism is to American populism. So there's no space in Dutch politics, for example, in the way there is in the US for being, you know, anti-abortion or taking on LGBTQ issues. But you do have that in some of these, but like Orban, part of his shtick is very much in that sort of social Absolutely. conservatism. Absolutely. But in the Netherlands, being on the far right is largely about Islam. And this began with Pim Fortune. And again, it tells you something, again, I'm quoting my friend Marnix, about what Dutch tolerance means. Because Dutch tolerance, going all the way back to the wars of religion, didn't really mean liking or understanding the other side, it meant despising them, but mm. leaving them alone. And there seems to be, its dominant culture is aggressively secular. And there's a sort of sense of total incomprehension of Islam. And Pim Fortune really developed this. He said, you know, Islam is completely incompatible with secular, liberal, progressive values. Wilders has lent into that. Um, he's also, of course, uh, talked about leaving the euro leaving the EU. He seems to like Putin. He's interested in banning the Quran on sale in public. He's already retreating on quite a lot of these things. And, and saying he wants to put them in the fridge. He says, <laughs> I'm going to leave my crazy ideas in the fridge. So, so, yeah. And that, I presume, is because he's trying to see what sort of coalition he could form. I think when you've won 37 seats, which is a fair few more than those who came second and third, you I think it's fair to say you can have the first go. Several of the parties have already said, no way they're going anywhere near him. That could create his own problems. I think he. I think he has to be prime minister. I think it's almost. In, in. I mean, I think you're right. Constitutionally, theoretically, the liberals and the left could gang up and stop him becoming prime minister. But I think for the people who voted for Wilders, that would be such a catastrophic. Hmm. And, and but, it's, it's, but it's interesting how he's already trying to unwind, a bit like Maloney has done in Italy. Orban's the only one who's survived a long time, actually. He's been, he, do you know that Orban is now the longest serving European Union leader? Amazing. Amazing. And he will be looking at this and thinking when it comes to the next European elections, he'll feel the right is on the march. Uh, he'll also feel that some of the, the policy in Ukraine, he can start to shift and also some of the policy on, on budgeting, particularly at the moment where Germany's in this complete 
economic mess due to the constitutional court repair so, part of their plans. So I think it's very likely he will become the prime minister and people are being too optimistic who think he won't. And I think the coalition will be him with 37 seats, the old Liberal Party of Mark Rutter with 24 seats, the NSC with 20 seats. That's Omsgut, who's this very interesting figure. Who, who was ahead about. in the polls until two weeks before the election. Absolutely. And who two weeks ago we were talking about because mm. he'd come out of this scandal around child benefits. Yeah. He'd broken very unusually in this very kind of um, conventional follow the party whip politics. He broke with the Christian Democrats over this issue. And effectively, the Christian Democrats turned their back on him and cheated him out of his ability to win the election for the mm. Christian Democrats, set up his own party, and out of nowhere really took 20 seats, mm. which again is very, very difficult in the Dutch system. Again, on, on Wilders, uh, this is also reminiscent, I believe, of what happened with some of Farage's parties. He doesn't have a proper political party. There's only one member of Wilders' party, which is himself. There's no party democracy. His MPs aren't allowed to speak unless he gives them permission. Absolutely. He chooses the candidates. There's no party democracy. And they can't look at his finances properly because he's only technically an association, not a political party. So he doesn't come under the normal campaign finance rules. I see that the guy that he's put in charge of the coalition negotiations has already had to step down through some scandal. And this is what often happens to these hard right leaders. We've seen it here whenever the BNP have got into local power that they tend to founder when it comes to actually governing. Now, Wilders, as you say, is, is a very experienced politician. Maybe he will prove us wrong on that. I'm not so sure that part of the driving of a deal in the coalition might be that he won't be prime minister. I think some of these parties might say, well, the only way we're going to do this is if you're not the prime minister. Yeah, or he waters down a great deal. And then loses a lot of the support yeah, that he's had. Drops most of his right-wing stuff, but probably keeps big restrictions on migration, asylum seekers, refugees. Yeah. Probably expels uh, Muslim clerics, which will be popular with his base. But drop all this banning the burqa, yeah. shutting down mosques. Yeah. Now, one of the things, though, that might be worth watching is that he won't push ahead with a referendum because he probably wants to get the Farmers' Party, the BBB, on side, and their absolutely belief that Dutch farmers are on the side of Europe. Both he and Le Pen, if there's one thing they've learned from Brexit, it's that it's not a very sensible idea. And so they've both watered that down already. But he may well be no to more European Union accession. Mm -hmm. He may be no to European budgets. So he may be a, yeah. a problem for, for Europe. Um, I think that this is a good transition to Millet in Argentina. I've noticed from our sort of conversational traffic and on the sort of rest is politics whatsapp group you're rather obsessed with his with his peruke absolutely amazing and i i think it's, do you think it is a wig it's yeah it's our big insight that we need to share with the world i think it's almost on the level with my great idea that if you've lost something it is where you think it is the insight is that populism is all about hair and Millet is actually known by argentinians as the wig people draw comparisons between his ridiculous hair and donald trump's ridiculous hair and michael fabricant Amazing. And and these politicians make huge jokes out of their hairstyles, don't they? Again, Gert de Wilders, the, the populist leader who's just taken over. His platinum dyed. Platinum dyed, yeah. And the Dutch newspaper says the most famous peroxide since Marilyn Monroe. Mm. Yeah, Johnson? It, uh, Johnson too, yep. So I think there's definitely, definitely, maybe not a whole book, but a, definitely a good article to be written on hair and populism. Or a cartoon, possibly. <laughs> or a cartoon. <laughs> but Millet, a bit like Wilders, is finally is having to reckon with some of the consequences of his crazier policies. And, and again, we don't know. So again, I was talking to an Argentinian who was very much saying, thank goodness we got a Millet. It's the only hope for the country. Yes, he seems crazy, but a lot of it is a joke. Call complacency. Exactly. And I think the question as we move to Millet is, are we to be reassured by the fact that 
when they come in, everybody says, oh, well, they're not quite so bad as people thought. They water down their policies or actually they bring in quite good advisors and it's the people under Trump them. didn't do any of that. Exactly. And he's not dead. Exactly. And of course, without overdoing it, when some of these nationalist fascist movements took over in Europe in the 20s and 30s, there was a real tendency in the early days to say, oh, well, it's not too bad. Mm, they're absolutely. probably going to be more moderate when they're in power. Well, I, don't they're should, I don't think we should complacent at all. We should put in the newsletter a, a piece I saw in the conversation from a guy called Aurélien Mondon, who I'm assuming is French or Belgian, but anyway, he's, 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 he's at the University of Bath. I think he sort of thinks people like you and I possibly have fed into this by the constant use of the phrase populism. Um, and I have in the past have worried about this because populism sounds quite popular. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, you know, if you're a populist, that means you're doing things to please the people. What's wrong with that? Whereas what he's thinking, his, his argument is that the, the far right is a dangerous political force and that the mainstream has done far too much to pander to it rather than challenge it. And I think that's what I was saying perhaps about the, the leader of Rutter's party when she started to say, yeah, maybe. And when we talk about, you know, these people have legitimate concerns, which a lot of, for a lot of people is just racism. So I, th I think that there's, we'll put it in the newsletter. It's, it's a very interesting read, suggesting basically that Vild neither Wilders nor Millet are shocks, that actually we should have seen them coming. And in fact, we have seen them coming, but haven't worked out how to handle them. One of the, the things that we just talked about in the transition is this, what they call livelihood security in the Netherlands, which mm. is the housing crisis. And it's partly because they have a green belt too. They have issues around nitrogen pollution, you know, many, many young people are now living with their parents or they're living in camper vans. And of course, very unfairly, the right of blaming asylum seekers for the absence of housing. It's a very familiar story, yep. right, which we can see in Britain. Um, but the litmus test, I think, really for all of this is going to be the French elections because Marine Le Pen is not going to have to need to compromise if she becomes president in the way that people like Wilders do. So the downside this when we talk about electoral systems, of the PR system is that these people can get mm. seats in parliament. The upside is that they're then forced to do a lot Trade. of compromises mm. in order to try to keep in power. Yeah. If Le Pen manages to become president, she has, as French president, astonishing power. She'd be, as Macron has found, you can be hugely constrained by the National Assembly. But I guess if she's going to win the presidential election, then you know the National Assembly is probably going to shift in certain directions as well. By the way, when I saw Francois Hollande recently, he said something very, very interesting. He said he wondered whether, with Brexit, Britain had hit peak populism, but the rest of Europe has yet to, to hit it. Now, I saw, uh, I saw somewhere Fraser Nelson, the spectator, saying that the great thing about Britain is that we don't have a, a populist party with representation in Parliament. And I, I think that is rather to overlook the nature of the current government. I think we have a populist government. And I actually think Sunak is becoming in his own way as populist as Johnson. No, so I'm, I'm going to challenge that. I don't think he's anything like as populist as Johnson. I think the, and I don't think we have a populist government, nothing like what we're talking about with Le Pen. You don't think Braverman's similar? No, 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 no. You think, don't think Braverman's like no, I think I, No, I think the challenge, uh, there I, I was about to come on to that. I, I agree with you that the real question is what do the Conservatives do after the election? Mm. And I also agree that if they perform particularly badly in election, it'll almost certainly be because they're flirting far too much with the populist right and not trying and that's to hold, the, that's the point that this guy from Bath is making. <laughs> but I, I also think Hollande is onto something. I think compared to Wilders or Le Pen or Maloney. Mm. And Sweden and the, Finland. Uh, yeah, no, no. I, and it's also not just a question about the Conservative Party. 
Um, it's also something very interesting about the labour movement in Britain, because we've talked about how the left has collapsed all over Europe, lost its working class voters. And in, in the cases like Holland or in Israel, the left has all but disappeared. It's barely a third of the vote. Whereas actually in Britain, the traditional left in the, in the form of labour is holding up. Mm. So Britain does seem to be a bit of an exception, but that's always worrying because the long-term trends are the same in Britain as they are in Europe and the mm. United States. And I think, you know, we may just be delaying this moment. Well, let's talk a little bit about Ireland and, and Dublin. Um, I did a, a bit of pedultery the other day, Rory. I was interviewed on a podcast which was presented by Michal Martin, oh, former Taoiseach, mm -hmm. now the foreign minister in the Irish government. And he actually asked me on to talk about my book and populism, Polarisation Post-Truth. Mm. He asked me on before the riots, and by the time we did the interview, it was in the middle of these riots in Dublin. Tell us about the riots. So there was a, an attack on some children and a carer, quite a bad attack. And what does the attack mean? It means some Irish citizen assaulted some children and a carer. Correct. Why? Because they... We don't know where it I don't know. Yeah, I don't he, know. Um, and then the news got out. And then, like wildfire, somebody, who, interestingly, I think he called himself Danny Boy on social media, but he did a minute-by-minute -minute account of the messages that were going out from these far-right groups, including in Britain, including in different parts of Europe. So the word went around straight away that this is an immigrant who's killing our people, Ireland for the Irish, Ireland first... Then people with a, on the far right in Ireland with the following, essentially saying to people, come out, you know, without, they obviously stay just, most of them, just the right side of the law, but essentially urging people to come out and fight. And literally within next to no time at all, there were buses being set on fire, police, police officers being attacked, and all based on a lack of knowledge deliberate dis disinformation about about what had actually happened. It's very strange, isn't it, Alan? Because, you know, we were there together a couple of weeks ago. It seems to have a very, from, from an outsider's point of view, a very mature, mm. successful, moderate government. It's had an amazing economic success story. It's leading European indicators across the board on a lot of key things. And yet it's also a place that, as we talked about, Sinn Féin, which is a very clear populist party, is now performing very, very well and in which things like this happen. So even in one of the real success stories of Europe with a very moderate government, you can see mm. under the surface. Oh, yeah. Well, Michal Martin said in the, um, in the interview that we did, he said that it's always been there. It's always been there. And, you know, he admitted that kind of immigration was a, for, some, for these people was a real problem. Now, the other thing you notice when you're in Dublin, as opposed to, say, being here in, in London or any of the big cities in, in the UK, it's, it's remarkably white. You don't, you, you kind of, if you see non-white people, you tend to, to notice them. So the fact that that could happen in those circumstances, and by the way, my favorite part of the whole horrible episode was the, the fact that the guy who stepped in and risked his own life to try and sort this thing all out, all out was a Brazilian delivery driver. And the good Irish people have now been setting up tons of funds for him to become hopefully a very wealthy delivery driver. But I think it just goes to show that, as you say, even in countries that we look in from the outside, I've got a very romantic attachment to Ireland. Most of my experience of Ireland is through the peace process, it's through lots of sort of nice trips there and lovely people that I know. So it did come as a genuine shock. But I, as, but I also think that both uh, Michal and Leo Varadkar, Leo Varadkar made a very, very good um, response to it. 
he wasn't doing what that guy from Bath University is saying. He, he really was totally calling it out. These people do not speak for Ireland. They do not represent Ireland. They're, you know, he wasn't doing that thing of, you know, yeah. we understand yeah, your yeah, legitimate yeah, yeah, concerns, yeah, yeah, all yeah, that. Yeah, he wasn't yeah, doing yeah. that. And I think we need a bit more of that challenge against this hard right stuff. Now, finally, before, before we finish, um, you quite rightly wanted us to talk a little bit more about what's going on in Africa. And we haven't really had a chance to do that. I mean, there's been an attempted coup in Sierra Leone which has been really interesting because, uh, remember, we've had eight coups in Africa in just over a year. You're including this one? Uh, no, th this is... This is a sort of... Wasn't well, this was, was very, it? very interesting. I mean, it didn't happen in the end. No. Uh, clearly, units of the military seem to have tried to seize barracks. The current president himself was a brigadier who was involved in the military coup in the 1990s, but is now a democratically elected president. Sierra Leone's suffering from many problems that are across Africa. I mean, huge inflation, huge hardship, massive youth unemployment, 60% poverty. But the reason why it's worth looking at is it's a different part of Africa mm. from where the Great Belt of the Coups happened, which is across the Sahel. Look at a map. Sierra Leone is, is much further down on the West Coast. And it's again an example of the real fragility. In fact, it's a fascinating interview that the current president of Sierra Leone gave to Al Jazeera. Maybe not worth watching the whole thing, but it is amazing the way Al Jazeera does this. Did long, patient, long-form interview with the president of Sierra Leone. About 15 minutes through, he's challenged on his own participation in coups. And he said, oh, yes, well, the coup that I did in the 1990s was a good coup because, you know, this government was corrupt and uselessness. And then four weeks later, they're trying to coup d'etat him. Um, anyway, that then brings us back to Sudan. And over to you. Well, just on, just on Sierra Leone, though, I mean, part of the tension that's there is the fact that people are rather worried about how he won the election. So it's not just that he was involved in a previous coup. It's just that there's a lot of concern about whether he's kind of legitimate. Which is true in many. And this is yeah. the sad truth. I mean, we've talked about thin democracy before. We were understandably so excited by the movement of the world towards democratic elections in the 90s and 2000s. But for many people in these countries, that the fact that there are elections is not very reassuring because a mm. lot of these elections seem to be stolen. Power remains very concentrated. The economies are not performing and that, that actually means that, sadly, many friends of mine I have who follow these issues closely don't really lament the disappearance of these democratic governments. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's one to watch. And the, the other one I think we briefly should just talk about, because we talked last week about how Ukraine, people are worrying that Ukraine is being forgotten with all that's going on in the Middle East. But Sudan is utterly horrific what's happening there now and this we've talked before about this civil war between the armed forces the government and this these rapid support forces there was again al jazeera uh, there was a report the other day about this violence in darfur that was it was horrific to watch and interviews with people describing what had happened to them in turn and it, it was it was honestly as bad as anything that we were seeing coming out of israel and gaza and yet it's almost as if the world's media can't cope with more than one big thing at a time. So, so quick reminder on Sudan. Um, the long-standing president was toppled in a coup. There was a brief civilian government. And then basically there was a military coup. And then the two big generals in the military ended up fighting. There's the traditional military, which is run by a man called El-Burhan. And against him is this man called Hameti, Mohammed Hamdan, who runs the Rapid Support Force, who is associated with a, a very disturbing group which emerged in the 2000s called the Janjaweed Militia, who represent primarily more nomadic pastoralist groups. He spent part of his youth as a camel herder from a 
tribal background and were used as these sort of militia groups in Darfur on these attacks, which people will remember, older people remember, were the great human rights atrocities championed by people like George Clooney in the 2000s. And now the fighting has spread to Darfur again. We've got over 5 million internally displaced people, 1.2 million Sudanese pushed across the border, many tens of thousands have killed. And again, a story that we have told when we have been analyzing Libya, for example, mm. of proxy wars, because at the heart of this is the United Arab Emirates. So this man, Hameti, was used by the UAE to fight in Sudan. They brought him over, paid him lots of money to bring over Sudanese mercenaries effectively to fight for them in Yemen. Partly with their support, he then got the major gold concessions in Sudan. So he's become a very, very rich man and his brother runs his companies out of Dubai. UAE has then given a $1.5 billion loan to Chad. Put that in context, the entire budget of Chad a year is less than a billion dollars. And in return has been allowed to set up a base on the Sudan border, which has a sort of a hospital in it for public show, but with very few patients, but is basically a supply base for landing weapons, which are then moved over to Hameti to back his side in the war against the Sudanese military. Were the Wagner Group not involved in that as well? And the Wagner Group are also supporting Hameti mm. and also bringing weapons in from other things. So this is really, really upsetting, obviously, for the US, the UK, who are part of something called the Quad mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, with Saudi, which is supposed to be bringing, um, and UAE, which is supposed to be bringing peace. So UAE, that's meant to be part of this alliance for peace, is actually funneling weapons into one of the sides, just as they were funneling weapons into Libya. And meanwhile, Qatar, emerging as the, big, the great broker in the hostage releases yeah. in the Middle East. And of course, Qatar also has had a very complicated history because Qatar has also had close allies yeah. with particular factions in Somalia, has allied itself with different groups in Libya. So this is, it does feel at times much more, not sort of Cold War, more sort of 19th century mm. power politics where you have a dozen countries interfering in other states playing these sort of complicated games. And in the case of UAE, it's partly about them putting a lot of money into Africa. They're buying mines in Congo. They're building ports all the way along the African Red Sea coast. They're making huge financial loans to governments. Mm. We, we shouldn't maybe keep plugging Al Jazeera as much as we do, but they, that is the only place where I've seen significant coverage of either of these two situations. And the other thing, I was actually channel hopping the other day and Fiona came in while I was watching the Al Jazeera coverage of what's happening in the Middle East. And she made the point that you, you get a completely different picture to what you'll get watching. I, and I'd say most, much of our news, I mean, it's horrific a lot of the time, but it's actually quite sanitized. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot of stuff that you'll see on yeah. Al Jazeera, which we're not seeing. No, they're very outspoken. I mean, the, this interview with the Sierra Leonean president, the, the interviewer is much, much more blunt about what he remembers of seeing the atrocities in Sierra Leone mm. during the Civil War and things. Um, little, little shout out to Declan Walsh, who's a very good British, I guess possibly British-American journalist for the New York Times, who did some incredibly detailed reporting on the UAE support. And the New York Times still has the funds to do some amazing investigations. They use satellite imagery to compare the footprint of these UAE bases to the bases that they've been building in Libya and they then used air trackers to follow in every plane. I mean, it's extraordinary, it's sort of almost like a kind of intelligence operation. Well, on the New York Times being an intelligence organization, <laughs> <laughs> we shall end this week's rest in politics. Thank you. See you next week. 
you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.